It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The title was finally unified. Wrestling was heating up in all the big cities. But the champion was seen as yesterday's star. Listen up to find out what happened next. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Welcome back, everybody. We are here. I am there through your headphones, through your speakers, in the voice in your head. That would be weird. Very weird, in fact. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling booker, a pro wrestling promoter, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am here with the Count Chocula to my booberry. Everyone loves us because we're so sweet, but we are really bad for you. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Oh, I'm living the dream, Daddy, because it is Count Chocula season. It's spooky season, boys. Welcome to the Hippodrome Express. It is spooky indeed. It is spooky that we have been having so much fun with the series that we are doing. We are still neck deep in the 1920s in the story of the Goldust Trio, of Ed Lewis, of Joe Stetcher, of John Pesek, Stanislaw Zabisco. And if you know those names because you just happen to know those names or you've been listening for the last several months, awesome, you are in the right place at the right time. If you go, who the heck are those guys? Did they win at SummerSlam? Well, you might want to take a step back because we want you to be caught up in this crazy story. So put pause on this and go back to the Stanislaw Zabisco episode. That's a great place to get started. That's kind of the first episode of this series. And listen from there, listen, learn, party, get all the details, hear the crazy stories, learn about the maniacs that made the business what it was. Yeah, if it wasn't for that epic Stanislaw Zabisco match at SummerSlam, he would have never survived the turn. <laughs> yeah, if you think that's the case, then you really need to go and take a deep dive back in the catalog. But that's what we've got now, man. We've been at this for a while, and this story is is in the later throws, but it is fucking... Oh, it is magnificent, I say. And... You might be listening to this, and you also might be a history nerd, and you might say, hey, according to this guy, I heard this story differently. According to this guy saying from his instructor, he learned this. And you know what? There is a lot of subjectivity to these stories because not many people in these days wrote down the truth. You go off of, hey, my instructor worked this guy who knew this guy, and he heard the story this way. Everybody's story becomes subjective and often self-serving. Once you get into the world of pro wrestling, which is 90% lies and 10% bullshit. Yeah, the only thing that is more of a work than professional wrestling's history is history's history. More or less. And if you listen to our last episode, you would know that we have gotten up to the year 1928. You would know that finally, after all those years of politicking and bitterness and outright violence, there was finally a title unification match. Joe Stetcher had been carrying the belt. He had been very active. He'd been very popular. But the weight of it and the travel and the schedule was wearing him down to almost nothing. He wanted out. And Ed Strangler Lewis very much wanted that belt back, not necessarily just for himself, but to put it back under control of him and Billy Sandow. There was a huge match. It drew big numbers. It made everybody a lot of money especially Joe Stetcher because he required a little something extra to drop that belt. Tom Pax established himself as the top promoter in the Midwest by putting that thing on and wrestling was ready for another big change. Ed Lewis had the belt. Billy Sandow was controlling the booking of said belt but was it going to be the same as it was in 1924 and 1925 when he ruled the world of wrestling with an iron fist. Yeah, no, it won't be, because one, the game has evolved around him, and two, he, his chip is not the champ that he once was. Strangler, I mean, Strangler, he might be on the verge of a second run here, but he has definitely tainted his legacy by holding onto the belt far too long the first time to where it galvanized opposition so yeah, Sandow doesn't have the stranglehold he once did, man. 
If we're going to look at what goes down in 1928 and 1929, we have to look at a new star that was on the horizon. We need to spend a minute talking about Gus Sonnenberg. Gus Sonnenberg was born on March 6th, 1889 in Green Garden, Michigan. He was a farm kid who went to a small country school before moving to Marquette, Wisconsin to live with his older sister and attend high school where he became a football star. He played guard, tackle, and kicker. In 1916, the team went undefeated. And I think you can agree with me, that's an accolade that even if you're not a wrestler already, that makes you pretty damn tough. Oh, yeah, and also it's, I don't know too many linemen that are kickers. That's a pretty impressive, that actually might be more indicative of how talented this guy is, the fact that he can kick as well as just be a hog molly. Yeah, especially since in 1920 he nailed an 80-yard punt during a Dartmouth versus Pennsylvania game Oof. and became a sports star. Like, we're talking front pages coast to coast because being a man who plays that many positions and nailing an 80-yard punt, uh, yeah, a little impressive. Yeah, especially because you're talking about before the standardization of the forward pass in football. So just seeing a kick go 80 yards when you're not used to seeing the ball in the air that much, that is super impressive. I bet that, I bet he could just put some stank on it. He graduated from University of Detroit in 1922 with a law degree, which he put to use at an automotive company when not playing pro football. In those days, pro football was a part-time job, like most pro sports. That was something I really learned reading a biography of Detroit Red Wings goalie Terry Sawchuck, where you would have these guys who were huge sports stars during the season and then would run a gas station uh, during the offseason. Same thing with Joe Stetcher. Joe Stetcher was wrestling, but then during the summer he was playing pro baseball. So... It was really a part-time job, making decent money, but it wasn't the millions that people make now, so it was, in sense, a part-time job. And also, football wasn't as big as it is today. So, pay trailed behind baseball, and from what I've seen, even hockey in those days. So, yeah, there was gridiron glory, there was the wonder of concussions and leather helmets, but the paychecks were the lowest rung of professional athletes. Yeah, but also the toughness and the respect that that garnishes is probably the highest amongst professional athletes. That's why you saw back in the day before the NFL started doing those mainstream numbers, even like later on a guy like Ernie Ladd, great NFL caliber all-star, but he left the league because the money just was not comparable to what you could make in wrestling because, you know, it was part-time at best back then. So being that tough and... With that low reward, I'm not surprised that they, they were able to, to entice this guy to become a champion, man. While playing for the Providence Steamrollers, which is one of the best sports teams I've ever heard as a name, <laughs> he went to a wrestling show to see his teammate John Spellman compete in the ring. Sonnenberg thought wrestling was stupid and that he could do it better than anyone he saw that night. So on a bet, Gus went to a wrestling gym and was a natural at it. He debuted on January 24th, 1928, with a win over Yvonne Ludlow. I'm taking a biography's word at face value on that date since I couldn't find any articles or source material at that time. Either way, he was pushed to the moon with almost two dozen straight wins. Pin in that. Does the story of a charismatic football player being pushed as a wrestling star immediately sound familiar to you? Huh. Oh, you're asking me? Oh, oh, you, I don't know, Chongo, what do you think? There's, this, there's a, a, a whiff in the air of a, a big man, I can't, can't quite put my finger on it, but it, it sounds vaguely familiar, yes. Uh, but the difference between Gus Sonnenberg and Wayne Munn was that Sonnenberg could actually work a match and make it look good. The 5'7", 200-pound Sonnenberg was an explosive athlete who made a flying tackle his signature move. It was pretty much a combo of a spear and a double leg as a finish. He could make it look good. He could make it look legitimate. And it became an exciting sequence for those in the front few rows 
because when he missed, he would launch himself through the ropes and into the seats, making every match 3D. Dive! So he invented This is his fault! Sonnenberg! No, that's actually really awesome. He just, like, launches himself at people. Yeah, it's, it, it actually, when I read that, <laughs> I actually saw some clips. It was fantastic as he would set up this move, but it did make it a... A, a move that could be countered. It wasn't an automatic kill. It wasn't an automatic finisher. So if somebody circled out, he would go flying through the ropes and land in the crowd and be able to sell before getting back in. So it definitely made things a little more exciting if you got ringside tickets. So he was an offense-based, athletically aggressive wrestler, and the fans loved it. He wasn't a shoot grappler. He was an athlete, a worker, and an entertainer. He seemed to be more respected than Munn and didn't have the same target on his back, most likely because he wasn't in the crosshairs between two rival wrestling companies and found a good promotional home with Paul Bowser. Even though he didn't have the shoot wrestling background, there wasn't the, you know, the same, the same kind of target for him as it was on Munn because Wayne Munn couldn't work to save his fucking life, couldn't shoot to save his life, and they pushed him to the moon as a phony champion. Gus Sonnenberg was more in that Goldberg seat where he looked good, he was physically intimidating, but they weren't putting the belt on him immediately. So even though he was pushed to the moon, it wasn't enough to make everybody resent him immensely. And also like visually, we're talking, you know, what, 5'9", 200 pounds. Big Wayne Munn is big Lex Luger-looking jerk, right? And it's like, you know tough guys. If you see some big-ass pretty boy, <laughs> you want to kick the shit out of him. Oh, God, yes. I, I hate that I still do that myself. Where yeah, fuck like that guy. Yeah, yeah no, I want to kick his ass, too. Yeah. But, like, Sonnenberg's, like, a little grunting piece of shit, and he's out there. I, and also, I love the fact that he's, like, this is dumb. I must do it. <laughs> that, that's what, see, that's what that, I love that he's an athlete, but he's a worker. It sounds like he really gets the business, and Wayne Munn didn't really get the business. Yeah, where Wayne Munn essentially would be carried on the back of whoever he was in the ring with. Soderbergh could at least make it look good, could at least do a full match, understood the entertainment part of it where he would launch himself when somebody when somebody sidestepped his spear. Yeah, that's so, cool. Like, so he's somebody where it all clicked together to be a worker, even though he wasn't a shooter. And they even had him beat Wayne Munn on May, <laughs> yeah. on May 10th, 1928 to set up a title match against Ed Strangler Lewis. Wait, did I say he beat Munn? Because he didn't just beat him. He ran him over with two falls in a combined one minute and 44 seconds. Wayne Munn couldn't put on a match. His name had been killed flat, but he was still doing programs with Ed Lewis. He still was a former champ. So why not have, you know, the up-and-coming football star turned wrestling star kill the former football star turned wrestling star? Oh, I love that. He was like, he really was the proto-Goldberg, wasn't he? From the Boston Globe the following day, quote, There was nothing stylish about Sonnenberg's wrestling. Nothing skillful. It was raw savagery. He tore into the gigantic mun from the moment referee Leon Burbank gave the word to start. I love that. Because, yeah, you, you again... For you guys at home, this is, we're talking 5'9 versus 6'4 of an Adonis. Like, the, the this guy, he's probably got the visual build of, like, a Mike Tyson, roughly, right? Like I'll show you some photos later. But, yeah, he, he definitely looks the part. So, you know, if you were casting somebody as a tough-as-nails wrestler-fighter and you were making that movie, he would be on your casting list. Yeah, because he just... Because I... I just love the idea of him beating the shit out of Munn because, yeah, Munn is this huge Adonis pretty boy that's just perfect. And, I, you know, that's one that, as they say, sold out the curtain, I bet. And he went on to have that title match. The first Ed Lewis-Gus Sonnenberg match sold out the Boston Arena on June 29th with ten to 12,000 in attendance, depending on which report you believe. The crowd treated Gus Sonnenberg like a hero as he made his way to the ring, having been built up by regional promoter Paul Bowser. 
The first fall went 37 minutes, 30 seconds, with Sonnenberg being the aggressor and Lewis being the wily veteran escaping through strategy and experience, circling away from Gus's tackle. But after a headlock escape, the, the fired-up Sonnenberg rebounded with the tackle of all tackles, flattening the champ. Gus jumped on him and secured a half-Nelson with an arm lock for the win in the first fall. So, yeah, they did the business right. They knew this guy was the hot ticket. Everybody was going to be happy behind him. So, yeah, letting him go out there and kill Ed Lewis on the first fall, that crowd must have been loud as heck. Oh, yeah, and also, and we know this, styles make fights. And this matchup, stylistically, like you said, the aggressive guy who's going to literally launch his body at you and take those risks versus the crafty veteran that's just a you know that's a story as old as time and that's a you know it makes sense because yeah he got that big baby face pop and hit the big 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 signature spear for the finish after it been countered i mean we're talking about falsies man this is class this is great shit i i bet the place blew for the first fall and when the second fall began lewis was immediately tackled into the ropes followed by a second. Smelling blood in the water, he went for a third, but Lewis moved and Gus went flying into the crowd, as we talked about a moment ago. He flew through the ropes into the crowd and he laid there on the floor, knocked Loopy from the impact and was counted out. Sonnenberg was carried backstage and was declared too injured to continue. The match was over. Lewis saved his crown without Sandenberg having to take a pin. Say what you want about Lewis holding onto the belt too long, but he wasn't afraid to build new stars. Well, you know, I I, I, I catch a whiff of something there. Somebody who was booking things early. He did yeah. have a, 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 what, what was that like? Yeah, it smells like a bit of a Sandow, doesn't it? It was classic Sandow star building. It was the same thing he was doing back in the day when he held the booking over at the champion. The New York Times on July 1st published, Sonnenberg defies doctor, collapses, suggesting with fear in their hearts that Sonnenberg might have broken his neck. Other papers, like the York Dispatch, claimed he was concussed from hitting his head on the floor. He reportedly collapsed at the hotel after leaving the hospital against doctor's orders. Because, of course, you have to leak that to the press that he was so tough he just walked out of the hospital wanting to make a show of it on his own steam even though he collapsed later because hey we now have built him up as somebody who could beat ed lewis potentially we've built him up as being so tough but now it's almost like he's the the aggrieved baby face because he probably would have won that match if that he hadn't have you know been sidestepped and went flying through the ropes and landed on his head Again, it's an old story that had been done many times in wrestling, especially in the last few years, but it, pardon the pun, doesn't lose its impact. Oh, no. A move like that can have a real stranglehold on things. Oh, boy. You know, it's a, it's a tremendous finish, and again, it smells like a Sandow because one other signature ingredient in a, in a Sandow work is the element of using the press. He has been a master at utilizing those elements to get those additional layers of emotional support or heat behind people. And he he's doing a true dude. I mean, he got the first fall, and it's only because he was so crazy and aggressive, that son of a bitch. I mean, it's he's literally building this thing up to be worth a, a mint. That summer, Lewis announced that he would be taking a tour of Europe before a farewell tour and retiring at the end of the year. He didn't actually wrestle. It was just a nice vacation with his new girlfriend. He returned in September and looked a little heavy. When it was pointed out, Lewis blamed German beer, as we all do. He mostly defended his belt in L.A. for Lou Darrow against men like Joe Malkowitz, Marin Plastina, and the rest of the usual suspects. But L.A. was hot enough of a territory at that point that he could have defended it against the janitor and sold 10,000 tickets. At the same time, Jim Londos was taking off as the biggest star in St. Louis and Philadelphia, 
beating John Pesek on May 2nd, and then Dick Chicot on June 25th in front of 13,000 fans at an outdoor event, and then beat Ray Steele in Philadelphia in a match that started outdoors, but was moved indoors after a rainstorm forced the Athletic Commission to put it on pause, which must have been a heck of a logistics thing. Be like, all right, let's find the nearest building. Let's break down the ring. Let's reset up the ring. Let's let as many people who are willing to travel to the building in, and hopefully we fit everybody in. Uh, do we restart from where? Okay, go. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. I mean, except that it wasn't an angle, but like that would be a cool angle to like set something up like that where the people had to like relocate and you could work it. But I mean, that's the problem. The weather doesn't work with you, brother. So why are you going to book some outdoor shit in some tornado country? Well, I mean, hey, it's it's a risk no matter what. I've, I've had several events that I've been part of where it's festivals or an outdoor brewery show yeah. and you're watching that weather app, you're watching those clouds and you're just going, well, let's see if this actually happens. Either way, the check better clear. Later on, Jim Londos departed for a five-month tour of Europe, but unlike Lewis, he did a real tour with actual matches. Ooh. And while Londos was in Europe, Ed Lewis was brought into main event in Philadelphia against Paul Jones on October 26th in front of 7,000 fans, winning in 48 minutes. Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Jones threw Lewis out of the ring three times, but was worn down by the Strangler's dreaded headlock, and declared that, quote, Ed Lewis sits more securely atop the heap, monarch of all he surveys in his wrestling kingdom, which is a headline we all wish to get in some form at some point. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a headline that is perfectly sort of Setting the scope for the return of the broken neck gunslinger, right? It's like nobody can stop the dominance. I mean, yeah, it's, it's something where it's that that equal part legacy as longtime champ and also having a great PR man as your manager and promoter. Toots Mont was on the undercard, and rumor has it that he was booking for Philadelphia promoter Ray Fabiani. Mont had completely broken away from Sandow and Lewis at this point, having grown tired of the internal power struggle against Max Bowman, who saw Mont as an internal rival. Mont also had slowed down his wrestling schedule due to mounting injuries. He was still working with Tom Pax in St. Louis with matches against Pesek, Daviscourt, and Londos, people he knew and felt safe with. He was happy to put over top guys and prospects, which is very rare for a wrestler turned booker. How many promoters are out there wearing their own titles back in those days to this days? The answer is too many. Yeah, pretty much almost all of them, except the ones that actually know what they're doing. But, you know, yeah, I, 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 I oh, toots. Oh, I love Toots. Toots, to me, is like the original, like, I don't know, I compared him to almost like Mr. Perfect or somebody. He was such a pro, such a worker, and he should have been the guy. He had such a mind for the business, and he never got put in the spot. And had they put him in the spot, it might have, history would have been entirely different, man. But, yeah, oh, Toots. I love Toots. And soon, Mont joined up with former professional rival Jack Curley, possibly as a financial partner oh. or just as a booker. It's hard to tell fact from fiction with a guy like Mont because he would take credit for anything he could get away with, even though he was a master of keeping things behind the scenes an absolute secret from the fans. So it was something where, at the time, you would never think he was as creatively and financially powerful behind the scenes at the time, but years later he was more than willing to say that everything was his idea. So again, the bullshit journey of pro wrestling history takes its twists and turns. But at the time he was branching out. He was booking for other promoters. He was making investments with other territories. He was doing some very smart things. Well, that's Toots, man. He's got... The, he's one of the best wrestlers. He's got the shoot background. He's got one of the creative, most creative minds in the history of the business. He's worked with the top guys. He's selfless and never tried to put himself in the top spot. 
even though, yeah, he's trying to take credit on the back end, during his run, like you said, nobody knew that he was pulling the strings that he was pulling, and he played the role. And, you know, you got to respect That's really a worker, man. He was a real worker. November 13th, Ed Lewis announced his engagement to Miss Elaine Tommaso. I couldn't find any news on the end of his previous marriage. Looks like it must have ended less dramatically than his first when the good doctor Ada Scott Morton found out she was single by reading about it in a newspaper. Woo, heel life. November 14th, 1928, the grand opening of the Boston Madison Square Garden with President Calvin Coolidge on hand to throw the switch to light it up. The new arena was designed and built by Tex Rickard to be a premier location for boxing and wrestling. Within a decade, it was one of the biggest arenas for wrestling and was the home for the golden years of the Boston Celtics. Paul Bowser booked it to host the rematch between Ed Lewis and Gus Sonneberg on January 4th, 1929. This was expected to be a huge expansion out of the New York, New Jersey market for Tex Rickert, who survived politics, conspiracies, the Athletic Commission, and a trial for sexual assault on teen girls. But one thing he didn't survive was complications from an appendectomy, and he died on January 6th, 1929. William Muldoon would state, quote, Boxing has lost one of its real friends, a man who did much to stabilize and improve the sport, and a fine, honest gentleman. What a hater. Because really, that's just Muldoon just hating on everybody who is, you know, hating on the workers. Hating on the workers. What an old grumpy fuck. The Brooklyn Citizen had a full page of memorial articles and kind words from athletes and politicians. I didn't see any mention of the trial for sexual assault or any quotes from his alleged victims. I only say alleged because he was found not guilty, not because I worry about his ghost suing me. I personally fully believe he was guilty, but try getting a rich white man in prison for that in the 1920s. Yeah, that's not going to happen, but I tell you what will happen. You're going to, like, die from, like, some shit that we could cure very easily now, and it's going to be your karma, motherfucker, and that's why he died. What did he die from? Oh, it was an appendectomy. So he had his appendix removed, it got infected, and that was yeah, it for him. That sounds about right. That's what you get. Yeah, haha, ha, fuck you. And the year closed out with a great match that was not in the United States. It was Jim Londos versus Carol Zabisco in Athens, Greece, on... December 2nd, 1928, at the Panathoniac Stadium. This was a huge event with many sports on display in front of 40 to 50,000 people. The Panathoniac, I'm probably mispronouncing that stadium, was first constructed as a race course in the 6th century BCE, redone as a marble arena in 144 CE and was refurbished and restored in time to host the very first modern Olympics in 1896. What a moment for Jim Londos, the Golden Greek. He got to go back to the mother country, perform in an ancient Greek stadium, hosted by where, we, where the original Olympics was hosted in front of 50,000 people. And he squat. He got squashed in two minutes. No, that is epic, though. That's like British Bulldog at Wembley. Is the only thing that I can think of in my life that would even Ooh, compare to that. that. That is a good comparison. And you're also probably thinking, who the shit is Carol Zabisco? Don't worry, he's not a fake Zabisco. Oh, I was just assuming he was like <laughs> the little brother that didn't quite make the league. He was a cousin, nephew, or second cousin of the Zabisco brothers, depending on who's telling the story. His real name was Carol Novina. He was trained by his more famous cousins. Much like Stanislaus, he was highly educated, spoke several languages, and was accomplished in multiple sports. And in 1934, he was supposed to face George Gracie in Rio de Janeiro. That match fell through, and Novena went to a draw with Renato Gardini, and George Gracie lost via armlock to Vladik Zabisco on October 6th. George was a younger brother to Carlos and Alio, and fell out with Alio because he used the Gracie name to advertise his academy, which Alio believed only he should be able to do. And if that's not Gracie drama, I don't know what is. 
Yeah, I don't know what's what's more Gracie is the idea of a Gracie family member telling another family member you're not allowed to use your name or other fake family members trying to like you like I'm a I'm a Zabisco, I'm a Gracie. Like, you know, the, the I'm the I'm the second cousin. And there would be a lot of overlap with the Zabiscos and the Gracies in South America in the 1930s, but that's going to be a story all to itself. Anyway, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on December 29th, 1928, quote, Pesic toys with man who often extended Ed Lewis' small crowd at Matt Show. The article was joking about how Ed Lewis would constantly have to dig down deep to defeat Mike Romano, making subtle digs at the worked matches. The article described how Pesek, quote, showed him up to be a nincompoop as a wrestler and flattened him without the slightest effort in 18 minutes and 7 seconds. The show drew poorly, but I couldn't find the exact number, so they did a short show all around. And I just love that there's still the shit-talking of pro wrestling in that, where they're like, oh yeah, you know, uh, John Pesek killed this guy that always gives Ed Lewis so much problems because they wrestle fucking constantly. So he is now in those um, moments where it's like the, you know, where, where it's like, Oh, yeah, Pesic goes out and fucking kills somebody in front of a small show, and that's just Mike Romano's role. So it's just funny seeing the Brooklyn Brawlers, the Barry totally. Horowitzes of the day, getting called out. Wait, what, was the, what was the word they said in the paper there? What was Nick the... called him an income poop? Uh, yeah, dude, you got to give it to the old-timey shit-talking, because, like, get a, you know, why don't you go get a reputation and income poop? And, like, the way that they would just, like, turn a phrase in it with the vicious old-timeriness, it's it's really beautiful. We need to bring nincompoop back, because there's a lot of nincompoops these I days. I know too many nincompoops. I'm in the room with one right now. Getting back to Gus Sonnenberg. The loss to Ed Lewis and their first match did nothing to diminish Sonnenberg in the eyes of the fans. It was solid booking to keep him sympathetic to the public, having lost to a freak accident after winning the first fall. 20,000 fans filled the new arena on January 4th, 1929, according to the New York Daily mm. News, which probably still had that new arena smell to watch the title match go down. Many more were turned away, and over 100 police officers were on hand to keep the peace. According to the New York Times, quote, many of the seat holders were persons of prominence, and thousands of them were college graduates and students, a faction which has become interested in wrestling because of Sonnenberg. And I want to kind of explore that, the fact that by bringing in like a collegiate athlete, a an educated man, somebody who came from Dartmouth, somebody who came from that Northeast upper crust college um, world, well, now you're bringing in all those college kids who are coming to back you. They have found a new demographic to sell tickets to, which I know personally is a great business strategy. As soon as you find somebody who is outside your market and you give them a hero, well, guess what? They're going to start showing up. Yeah, I was gonna, it's exactly, you know, Raven in the 90s, you know, with the when you, when you bring somebody in, or Darby Allen nowadays, right? Like when, when somebody who has a Venn diagram of reach that is not a typical pro wrestling Venn diagram, and like, you know, the, now like the Hot Topic kids are like, Darby Allen's cool. And it's like, that's a wrestling guy. So, okay, now that's their introduction to wrestling through that sort of like crossover conduit. So that's a really cool thing to uh, see that. But also... I think it's just, it's a, you know, regardless of who makes up that audience, that they, the fact that they drew 20,000 people, that's not just him being over. That's tremendous booking. And the way they set it up, it, it almost has that Stone Cold Bret Hart finish thing where the guy, it actually got him more over the way he lost. Exactly. Because, yeah, he was on the upward trajectory, but there's nothing like watching the hot new star lose the title shot without losing the title totally. shot. Totally. It makes it indignant. It makes it, you know, you get behind the guy more because he would have beaten Strangler if totally. it weren't for this freak accident. It's also at a brand new arena. 
in a new hot market where Paul Bowser had been building up wrestling over the years. So it was a perfect storm to build a big audience, and that audience was treated to one hell of a match. After a brief feeling out period, it was action and strategy as Sonnenberg chased after Lewis, trying to land his tackle, and Lewis circling to avoid it with his back to the ropes, so a miss would mean Sonnenberg launching into the crowd. So right out of the gate, we are demonstrating almost a shoot-level strategy yeah. where Lewis is showing actual strategy, as if this were a real fight. He's circling. He's circling away. He's circling away from the shot and staying close to the ropes because they have built up his almost slingshot power uh, double leg, his spear, his tackle that always sends him through the rope. So that crowd up front probably was like, oh shit, he's going to be landing on us. Oh shit, it's going to happen. It's like when you're ringside at a current wrestling show and, you know, they're going to brawl through the crowd and it's going to be wild. So it made it more exciting. It showed strategy on top of strategy. It showed that Ed Lewis was worried about his big move. It showed that Sonnenberg was going at it aggressively. They laid the foundation well right after the bell. Yeah, and and it goes back to just the beautiful stylistic matchup. The contrast of, of the counterfighting veteran and the super aggressive athlete. It's just a beautiful story, man. And yeah, it's set up on so many levels. It's from the matchup to the way that it's been booked and the way that now they're playing it out. It's just, it's it's brilliant. It's done perfectly. This is the right way to do it. And it got even better. Huh. At one point, Lewis kicked Gus in the head and grabbed a headlock. He violently shook him and then dragged his face along the rope as the crowd booed him. Wow. So again... Pure pro wrestling, but what a way to piss off the crowd. And it looked like Sonnenberg was worn down and finished, so Lewis launched him from the hold, but Gus bounced right back and landed the spear for the pin at 29 minutes, 46 seconds. The crowd went wild, but looked cautious over Sonnenberg seemingly spent after his possible fluke win in the first fall. So it was just... You know, strategy on Lewis's part, brutality heel moves on Lewis's part, big, you know, fire up comeback on the hope spot, boom, takes him down for the pin at the half hour mark. Big win, but, you know, that was something Lewis always did as he wore people down with that headlock, so everybody was a little worried that maybe he wasn't going to come out or would come out spent. Yeah, and also they, they're, they're cautiously optimistic because aside from him being spent, they saw this last time. Last time he wasn't spent and he ended up not getting the job done because he was overly aggressive. And this time maybe it's going to be, you know, the porridge is too cold and he's too spent to get the job done. So they're doing a tremendous job of telling the same story. Meanwhile, he hasn't taken a fall yet. And coming out to the second, Sonnenberg looked fully recovered after the rest period, and it was Lewis who looked flat-footed. Sonnenberg pushed Lewis all over the ring, sending Lewis out of the ring with his tackle, including one that sent him into the press box. So he just keeps doubling, you know, hitting the spear, hitting the big double, and they're both going out of the ropes. So that crowd must have been just fired up as hell. So... After the shot into the press box, Lewis was worn down and couldn't make it into the ring to answer the count. The ref counted Lewis out. Gus Sonnenberg was awarded the match and the title. Lewis surrendered the Ed Lewis belt, which Lewis had held throughout the Munzabisco Stetcher affair. Paul Bowser had created a fake commission with a set of rules called the AWA, so the belt now became the AWA belt. Lewis, again, is like very similar to the Munn situation, but without a setup for a rematch initially, because when he lost to Munn in a similar way, it was a count-out injury title forfeiture, but he held onto the belt, and it turned into a lot of drama. In this, they did the same move to keep Ed Lewis looking strong, but it did turn into a title switch with the belt handed over. The belt now turned into a new legacy of the AWA, which in many ways was a precursor to the NWA. This was the attempt to kind of create a sanctioned belt in the Northeast. Like the unified title, right? Similar, similar, exactly. 
The Daily News claimed that, quote, Lewis had been butted seven times in rapid succession by Sonnenberg, and each time he crawled or fell outside of the ropes to escape from the challenger's flying tackle. Referee Leon Burbank warned Lewis each time he went outside and finally started to count on him. After the seventh butt, Lewis failed to step back before the count of ten, and Burbank awarded the decision to Sonnenberg. This time around, Lewis didn't keep the belt, and it was wrapped around Gus's waist. According to the New York Times, the gate was $72,000, with Sonnenberg getting paid eight k and Lewis 50 k Oh, well, you know, hey, welcome to the big show, kid. He just made you a star where you're going to make a lot more money, so I don't, I mean... Well, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's it's very much like when Stetcher took the lion's share to drop the belt to Lewis. Yeah. It's like a lot of times it's like, hey, I'm the big star, I'm the big name, I'm the big whatever. So if you want the belt, you can have the belt, but I'm taking almost all the money because that's what I care about. And also, like, to be fair, that is probably the end and the crescendo of their payday thing where the other guy's just getting started on that, too. Exactly. I mean, you also have to think, like, 8K in 1929... Is a fucking shit ton of money. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot to earn in a single night. I mean, but, Lewis, that's he he's in that level of, like, you know, somebody like... Uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. I was just where, gonna say, where yeah. yeah, his payday is going to be astronomical, but it's going to justify itself with the draw. Especially when you're talking about him putting over the and making the next guy and doing business and putting the belt and giving up the belt and not keeping that controversy. Fifty grand, though, man, that's pretty, dude. What a worker! And something to address is why the screwy finish. This was the kind of thing that usually set up a rematch and kept the former champ strong. Again, it was the same formula used with Wayne Munn versus Ed Lewis, but there really couldn't have been a plan to put the belt on a worn-out, fat, and nearly blind 40-year-old yet again. The footage of the match was shown in theaters across the United States and Europe. I found one ad in the Chicago Tribune from January 28, 1929, for the Oriental Theater showing the match before the comedy movie Naughty Baby. And if you know anything about me in the Oriental Theater, it's where I run my own show, Lucha Libre and Laugh. So it was like a cool little thing to uh, to find. Whoa, really? I wonder, did they, did they like have any like archives of the old footage and stuff somewhere? You can find a lot of the footage, because this is getting into the day where things were a little more preserved. But Whoa. when I was going through tons of you know, just searching the name, I was finding that, yeah, it would be like, come see this screwball comedy, but before that, watch a long wrestling match. So, yeah, it's not like a, you know, like how they would do cartoons where you'd show up to watch the movie, and before that, you'd watch, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, solve a mystery of a ghost, you know, whatever it was. I mean, this was a feature presentation of a wrestling match before the movie. I assume it was like a marketing to, like, Get the husbands to take the missus out to watch a comedy about a young lady in the city. So it's like you got to watch the wrestling match and then you could, you know, take a nap or go get drunk during the movie itself. Shoot, rom-com, double feature. And after this big title change, this big sea change of Ed Lewis having taken the belt back from Stetcher and then dropped it onto a new believable star, a difficult decision had to be made by me. Because while history goes and goes and goes, a story has to stop somewhere. And this is where the story is coming to an end. It would be easy and tempting to just keep this story going, to follow these characters year after year, match after match, world without end. But thematically, the story is over. We started off in the weird transitional period after Frank Gotch and Georg Hackenschmidt burned down the industry with a terrible match on September 4th, 1911 in Chicago. The industry was in shambles. The Midwest became a catch-as-catch-can hub while a tournament tried to rebuild New York as a Greco-Roman kingdom. New stars grew out of the shadow of Gotch and Hackenschmidt. Older stars found success and bitterness in a business that rejected everything they once stood for. Global conflict tore the world apart and brought it back together in a different order. Empires rose and fell. Filmed matches were seen in theaters. Radio brought matches into homes. 
over the course of a decade, pro wrestling as we knew it was born. Gone were the carnival days, the challenge days, the days of sticks and marks and strong men acts. It was now storylines and bigger-than-life stars. It was screwjob finishes and in-ring antics. It was pro wrestling. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm sorry. It's, it's a little, you know, this is such a, I'm a little emotional, man. I, I feel like we got to the end of, like, some epic... I don't know, it's like Lord of the Rings or something. Like, this is, this was an epic journey. And yeah, that was the, you know, literally the journey from the Dark Ages and how the Gold Dust Trio was the prototype for what we know of the territory. And now we've seen sort of the point where the formation of what we would consider a, a territory champion, an AWA, a recognized AWA, like that's one of our brands that we know now. Like this is the start of it. And it is, it's really fascinating how those things that were kind of done out of necessity and trial and error have become standard tropes. And on a personal level, it's also just very strange to get to this point because the first episode of this series, the true first episode of Stanislaus Abisko came out in March of this year. It is now October. You could even say it started with the 1915 tournament that came right before that. So we have lived with these people for a very long time. We have followed their lives, their struggles, their triumphs, their defeats, their intrigues, their betrayals. So it is very hard, in a sense, to let go of them for now. Because they had changed the world of pro wrestling, and now things were changing yet again. Men like Jack Curley and Billy Sandow ripped the power away from the individual wrestlers and managers to create a centralized booking system. They installed regional promoters who in turn took the power away from Curley and Sandow. Territories were being born and began working as a collective, which would lead to the system that dominated the majority of the 20th century until Vince McMahon Jr.'s WWF devoured them in the age of television. It was another transitional period of old stars holding on past their prime, while new stars fought to grab the top spots and the glory of the main events. To quote Antonio Gramsci, The old world is dying, and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Cut print martini, dude. That's like, that is the greatest quote, I think, to... Like, that, that speaks to us, too, man. I don't think that that's, that is, you, you know, I think that applies today as well. Absolutely. Everything is life cycles. Everything is overlap. Everything is the microcosm, the biological cesspool. Everything is growth and stagnation, peaks and valleys, births and deaths. And everybody involved in this story, for the most part, their stories go on. Earl Caddick did the rarest of things. He got out of the wrestling business and succeeded in normal life. He would sell cars and tractors in Iowa before taking the role of president of the United Petroleum Corporation. He died in 1950 after complications from heart surgery. Stanislaw Zabisco would wrestle until the mid-30s, either against up-and-comers or putting over anyone who mattered. He officially retired in 1934 and focused on scouting and promoting throughout South America. He also trained Johnny Valentine and Harley Race. Stanislaus had a small but iconic role in the 1950 film noir classic Night in the City as, you guessed it, an old wrestler. See it if you haven't. Zabisco passed away from a heart attack at the age of 88 on September 23, 1967. Jack Curley would remain the powerhouse in the New York area, building his business in the 30s around Jim Londos, who broke out as a megastar. Curley, ever the sports politician, formed a territorial trust with Tom Pax, Paul Bowser, Ed White, and Toots Mont, which would hold strong until 1936 and is seen as the direct precursor to the NWA. Curley would die of a heart attack on July 12, 1937. William Muldoon died on June 3, 1933. He was not remembered in the media as the pain in the ass on the wrestling and boxing world, but as the man who cleaned up the corrupt world of boxing, even if he would take some aspects too far. Lou Darrow remained the king of wrestling in Los Angeles for years to come. 
Partnered with Toots Mont in the 30s, they did business with Jack Curley out east to bring the biggest stars of the Empire State to Hollywood. But things started to fall apart for him after 15 years on top, leaving boxing behind in 1934 after losing a small fortune on a string of fights at the Olympic Auditorium. In 1935, he was the center of a scandal when he got into an argument with a man named William Foker, whose brother was owed money by Darrow. Darrow called the cops and allegedly claimed Foker was armed and had robbed him. The police shot and killed Foker when the suspect tried to run. In 1939, the Athletic State Commission came after him hard and ruined his wrestling business when they brought to light his payoffs to media and politicians. He lost his license to promote in 1940. He retired and died in 1956. And yes, you're damn right. We're going to do an episode about that story. Oh, I've I already I can wait. For, I can't wait, dude. I'm I'm already cooking in my head like right now the 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 headlines. John Pesek had a much longer career than anyone would guess and spent a good amount of his time touring in New Zealand and Australia. His focus turned towards breeding and training greyhound dogs for racing and was possibly more successful in this endeavor than he was in wrestling. At one point in the 70s, 95% of American greyhounds were descended from his champion dog named Jess Andrew. There's actually a statue of him in Nebraska, and it's not showing him as a wrestler. It shows him with statue dogs. He wrestled his final match in 1954 and was active long enough to be on the same card as his son, Jack. John Pesek passed away on March 12, 1978, from a heart attack. Well, that is definitely something that is cool, regardless of, you know, who it is. That's one. That's on my bucket list. I always, you know, my retirement match, Chongo Jr.'s taking me out. For good, I hope. Oh, yes, we can only hope. And it's very interesting to see John Pesek's career stay prestigious and stay at the highest level after him shooting on Joe Stetcher. Usually, you'd think that'd be a career killer, but he was enough of a worker, enough of a technician, enough of a draw, that he was able to keep it going for decades. Mike Romano would hold his spot as a national mid-carder until June 25th, 1936, when he died in the ring during his match against Jack Donovan. They tried to kayfabe it as a broken neck from Donovan's hold, but the truth was heart failure. And again, isn't it pro wrestling that a man died of a heart attack in the ring and they try to turn it into a storyline to make Jack Donovan look like a fucking murderer? Yeah, I love it. That's a shout out to Freddie Blassie making fans die in Japan, right? Like, <laughs> anything to get over, darling. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Wayne Munn left the wrestling business for good in 1928, spent some time in the Texas oil business before dying of kidney failure on January 9th, 1931. Big men are unfortunately not built to last. Yeah, especially back then. That sucks. Cause he, I'll say this. We, we've had our fun with old Wayne in the mud, but he, he didn't seem like he was that bad of a guy. Oh, no. I mean, he's not a patsy. Yeah, he's not just like some goof mark who was brought in and wasn't in on it. He was in on it, but he didn't seem like a terrible guy. He was just in the right place at the wrong time that turned into the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, he wasn't the ultimate warrior. He was Lex Luger. Exactly. <laughs> Joe Stetcher remained very active until his final match on February 21st, 1934, putting over Jim Browning. It was a frustrating position where he needed to work to make money, but as he hit 40, he was forced to put over people he could legitimately tie in knots, which bothered him. Soon after retiring, Francis, his wife of nearly 20 years, left him and took the children. His mental health deteriorated quickly, and soon his brother Tony, who had invested in the Minnesota Wrestling Club, which one day would become the AWA, the home of Vern Gagne, would have to intervene after another of Joe's breakdowns. He had the former champ institutionalized in the St. Cloud Veterans Hospital, where he would spend the final three decades of his life. Damn, that is fucked up. Yeah, unfortunately, this was not a day of good therapists, good psychologists, medication to help with bipolar disorder. He just couldn't handle it, but he seemed, according to Luthez, who paid him a visit towards the end of his life, said that he was very healthy and happy. He just needed the constraints of institutionalization to keep him steady. 
Jim Lados went on to be the number one babyface of the 30s and 40s, crossing over in pop culture as a sex symbol due to his physique, and had a lengthy career well into the 50s. Toots Mont would remain a visionary and brilliant mind working behind the scenes of the wrestling business, working as a booker for Lou Darrow and Jack Hurley, pushing younger champions like Dick Chicot and Jim Londos. With his various allies, he kept his thumb on the New York wrestling scene. In 1948, he and financier Bernard McFadden ran the first Madison Square Garden wrestling show in nine years. Gorgeous George defeated Ernie Dusick in that main event. Ed Lewis would wrestle into late 1947 despite being almost entirely blind. He went on to train and manage men like Gene LaBelle and NWA champion Lou Fez. Billy Sandow and Ed Lewis parted ways in 1932. Sandow claimed to have no idea why Lewis signed on with another promoter, while others have claimed that Sandow didn't want anything to do with the blind, increasingly heavy, and constantly broke Lewis. He would keep busy as a booker in the wrestling business into the 50s, then retired to Portland, Oregon. In 1963, Toots Mont and Vince McMahon Sr. broke away from the NWA over issues with booking champion Buddy Rogers, renaming Capital Wrestling Corporation to Worldwide Wrestling Federation. The rest is history. Wow, man. That's that so we're really like on the precipice of like what we would call modern wrestling history now. Yeah, these men created the what we call modern wrestling. Sure, it was crystallized, it was formalized during the NWA years and then into the kind of that crossover territory WWF world of wrestling that we know now today on television but all these men lived these crazy lives had these crazy careers had these crazy declines twists and turns peaks and valleys and nobody lived happily ever after because nobody ever does yeah that's the part they don't tell you in the fairy tales but you know i would say it's really cool that Everybody, the way, it's it's so interesting how things, I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but things could have only played out this way for things to have played out this way. And it's really crazy because, like, one thing different, right? Like, had they dropped the belt to Toots at that time and the entire power structure hadn't shifted and the double cross would have never been able to happen on Big Wayne Munn and the whole domino effect, right? It's really remarkable how... Everything we know now that is just so standard, this stuff, like, some of it was, like, by design, some of it was by happenstance, but now it's it's so fascinating to me to see how those chips fell into place. And that's how modern wrestling was created, and that's not just the end of the episode, it's the end of this long story. I have had so much fun researching this and talking about it. How about you? Dude, this is, this is, I love this, man. You know, I am a student of the game, and I love professional wrestling, and I know you do, and anyone listening to this, this is what we, this is truly special, you know, bedrock stuff, and we, I'm honored to have undug this stuff and been your co-pilot on this, man, because I don't think that some of this stuff has really been uncovered and put anywhere for anybody, so you guys appreciate this man you know buy him a, a, a papa john's pizza or something and speaking of that type of behavior i want to thank both jessica and lydia for sending some research money my way we really appreciate that i bought a fun biography that will be the topic of at least one episode in the near future so thank you so much for that and make sure you're liking us on facebook following us on twitter and instagram i post as many of these fun goofy old headlines and pictures that i can find so it is kind of worth checking out and if you have any feedback we'd love to hear it message us on any of those formats and this may be the end of this long-form tale, but it sure the heck is at the end of the show. We'll be back with a few kind of one-shots and easier uh, tales to tell, some goofy stuff, because I'm, of course, already loading up for the next big deep dive, because while I am needing a little break from heavy research, I am never tired of my own voice. 
Yes, well, that makes one of us. <laughs> no, I mean, dude, this is, a, it was such a great story, and we wouldn't be doing what this show is designed to do if we hadn't gone through and done the due diligence. But I do have to say, I am really excited being the ADHD crazy, you know, don't do research one. We're about to do some one-offs and get some wild shit going, man. We're about to get to take the Hippodrome Express on some uh, side quests, and that's going to be quite groovy, old chap. So we'll tie into that later. You'll hear more about that later. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. What'll it be? You'll just have to uh, find out because we're going to be kind of all over the place for a while. So until then, for Chango Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk at you next time. Yes, peace out, nerds. Cut print martini.